I'm in a dilemma this morning. I have 12 points. I have preached for many years. I've never had a sermon with 12 points. But I drew the last section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 down through verse 28. Because of the bright spots, I can't really see that screen back there anyway, but they're going to uh, advance the slides up in the sound booth, and maybe that'll help you catch the 12 points. Strengthened in hope because of the second coming of Christ. We must make a distinction between what we say we believe about the second coming of Christ and what we really believe. And the reason is apparent. What I believe changes who I am. What I am changes what I do. Therefore, what I believe changes my behavior. My behavior reflects the core beliefs of my soul. If we really believe in the imminent, any moment return of Christ to rapture the church, then there are certain attitudes that reflect that belief, and hence the 12 points. Now, I'll give you just a wee bit of grammar. Verses 16 through 22, each have a primary verb that takes the same form. Each is a second person plural imperative. You rejoice. You pray. You give thanks. You quench not. You despise not. You prove. You abstain. Imperatives are commandments. Yet I think in the broader context of this book, we're not so much looking here at a checklist as much as we are looking at heart attitudes that genuinely develop in people who really expect to see Jesus not someday, but maybe today. So we begin with verse 16. Many of you memorized this as children because you were looking for a two-word verse when you had to say a verse. And somebody else took Jesus wept. So you had to take rejoice evermore. This is an attitude of joy. Again, we must distinguish between the experience of joy and the experience of happiness. Happiness depends upon happenings, things that occur in life. Joy is dependent upon relationships. We know from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 that a deep and abiding relationship with the Holy Spirit of God produces the fruit of the Spirit, which includes joy. Now, you can have joy regardless. And I think the classic illustration of that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
where Paul was addressing the Macedonian believers and their giving habits. And he said there in verse 2, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. They were impoverished. They were under the iron heel of Roman taxation. Uh, They were not doing well personally. And yet they were continuously filled with joy because continuous rejoicing is a deliberate choice because of the object of our focus. We live in a troubled and a troubling world. It is increasingly chaotic and frustrating. How can we experience joy? Because this world is not our home. We're just passing through. A songwriter said, Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The world changes. It's changed a great deal in my lifetime. But God does not. And our relationship with Him does not. Heaven is our home. And it looks more wonderful every day. To continuously rejoice, we must continuously have a second coming focus that keeps all of these immediate events in perspective. Verse 17. Pray without ceasing. This is an attitude of prayer. The word for prayer used here is a comprehensive term for every form of reverential address to God. There are many forms of prayer, including petition, intercession, supplication, praise, even imprecatory prayer. This kind of covers all of them. One of the old writers wisely said, the act of prayer is intermittent. The spirit of prayer should be incessant. And that's really what Paul is talking about here. Now, I know some people might think you're presumptuous. I personally believe that if people heard you truly pray from your heart out loud, they would think you were presumptuous. But the truth of the matter is, prayer is a conscious communication with Almighty God from the depths of your soul, and frankly, you can strike up a conversation with God anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. You can frankly pray about anything. In fact, you should pray about everything. And this is the result of a lasered focus on the reality of eternity, which is very near because of the second coming of Christ, that being very real to you. Could I quickly pose a question? If you knew before you got out of chapel this morning, you were going to see Jesus, would you be motivated to pray a bit, even before chapel is over? I think. Verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning 
You, I love this phrase. I've heard it through the years. I love attitude of gratitude. I just love that phrase. Did you know that gratitude is seldom the natural response of the fallen nature? It is particularly difficult in an entitlement culture such as we live in where people think that certain things are their due, that things ought to be done for them. To view ourselves as the humble recipients of the manifold grace of God is a second coming reality. In preaching from this text years ago, I waxed eloquent on the phrase, thanks in everything give thanks. And my brilliant comment was, I can be thankful in everything. I don't have to be thankful for everything. The problem was, my wife corrected me later, not while I was preaching, but she reminded me of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, which says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can I possibly be thankful for things I don't like? I didn't choose. I didn't want. It comes back to second coming realities. I can be thankful by recognition of the fact that absolutely nothing reaches me that does not first pass through the filter of God's everlasting love. Second, I can recognize that everything that happens is part of the path that leads me to my eternal home. Third, I can realize that God is not doing things to me. He is doing things for me. And in understanding those things, I can have an attitude of gratitude in and for all things. Wow. What would that do for the complaint department in your life? Complaining is an American pastime. Baseball's not the favorite American pastime. Complaining is the favorite American pastime. We ought not. And if I knew I was going to see Jesus in the next few minutes, I don't think there'd be anything I'd be complaining about. I'd be so excited about that. Anything that's happened to me in this life would be totally inconsequential. Verse 19. Quench not the Spirit. This is an attitude of obedience. Theologically, we understand the critical nature of the work of the Holy Spirit in every part of our lives. Practically, we must maintain an attitude that is faith-oriented and produces obedience. The word translated here, quench, we actually have an English word describing a product that we're not supposed to use anymore. Asbestos. 
the first church building I built, the building department made me line the mechanical room with asbestos. And the only thing in there was a hot water heater. The furnaces were not even in there. Well, what is asbestos? It is a fire retardant. It blocks the passage of flames. And in this context, it literally means to put out the fire. My heart rejoices when I see young people on this campus who refuse to be changed by dorm life. What do I mean by that? I mean that the authority in their lives is the Word of God activated by the Holy Spirit of God, not their peers. That they are far more concerned with how God looks upon them than they are concerned with how others see them. This is to obey from the heart, to be concerned primarily about my standing with God. We chime in with the songwriter. It's an old song, but I think you probably have heard it. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so wherever he leads, I'll go. So when we're having mission chapel and there's a missionary up here who is challenging you and the Spirit of God begins to tug at your heart, you don't try to put the fire out. When you have an old-fashioned preacher or southern preachers, the case may be, uh, who presses the point with a bit of passion and it makes you feel uncomfortable, you don't try to put the fire out. You listen and heed and from the heart obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit which always coincide with the Scriptures. So quench not the Spirit. Verse 20. Despise not prophesyings. Now this passage need not seem obtuse to us. There was a gift of prophecy in the early church. No question about it. You got people like Agabus uh, who prophesied of a coming uh, dearth and famine. It was one of the sign gifts given to the early church that is no longer functional in our day because we don't need it. We have the completed canon of the Scriptures. So why is Paul emphasizing prophesyings? What we often do not realize is that the prophets, all of the prophets, and especially the Old Testament prophets, did more than predict the future. Old Testament prophets were preachers of righteousness. They reasoned with God's people out of the revelation of things given to them that perhaps were future. As a matter of fact, most of the prophecies in the minor prophets were prophecies of judgment. These men were preachers 
so their foretelling led to forthtelling or preaching. People who live the second coming realities never minimize the Bible. They never minimize the preaching of God's Word. They do not absent themselves from church. They do not cut chapel. And they do not come to chapel, cross their arms, settle down in these miserable chairs, and try to go to sleep in order to escape. So I don't do that here. It's impossible in here. I hope you don't do it anywhere. Because God has a message for you. And if I really believe Jesus is coming, then I'm rather concerned about getting that message. The second coming attitude is give me more. Challenge me with truth. Equip me to live godly in Christ Jesus in this forward generation. Verse 21. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. This is an attitude about discernment. There has never been a time when believers needed more to be informed, to be thinking, to be evaluating everybody and everything in the light of the Word of God There's never been a time where that was more needful than it is today. The reality of the coming of Christ demands I take nothing at face value. It demands that I prove, literally, I test. This is a word meaning to test metal for genuineness. So that we are henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Now there is a spiritual gift of discernment. I understand that. But I also know there is an ability to develop discernment by being continuously immersed in Scripture and being determined to measure everything by the Word of God. Some of my students have Bible reading reports that they turn in uh, for my classes. And they have to make an application. And periodically in those applications, this comes up. I want to be a Berean Christian. I want to be measuring everything from God's Word. This is the day of the lie. Almost everything in our world is founded upon innuendo, guarded half-truths, or just outright lies. And regardless, by the way, of which side of the political spectrum you find yourself on, you must be aware of the fact that the information you're receiving is very often tainted, slanted, and directed to improve the posture of the person sending it out. And if you just embrace whatever comes down the pike you're swallowing a lot of untruth. How shall we discern truth from lies? Truth is in a person vested in a book. 
Jesus said you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So people who are expecting Jesus to come want to be aware of where they are on the time continuum and what is real and what is not real, what is true and what is not true in our world. Verse 22. You've not been in a youth group if this hasn't been preached to you at least once or twice or a dozen times. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Looking forward, rapture anticipating believers care about their testimony. This is an attitude about your testimony. This word abstain is literally a present middle imperative, meaning he always is distancing himself or always distance yourself. Anticipating the return of Christ, that does not motivate you to see how close you can get to the world. Anticipating the return of Christ motivates you to see how far you can get away from the world. In questionable things, we side with godliness. We line ourselves up on the right side of the difference between good and evil. This word appearance actually carries with it more the idea of abstain from every form of evil. We discern and we act We distance ourselves from anything that detracts from the glory of God. We intentionally maintain purity. We seek holiness because God is holy. And we strive to maintain an outward lifestyle that reflects an inward love for the truth. That means we don't do what we do to impress other people. We do what we do because it's right. Because it glorifies God. Verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse deserves a great deal more time than we're going to be able to give it. Now, whether you're a trichotomist, man is a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit, and I personally believe you can build a case for that from the Old Testament. There are different Hebrew words. Or you are a dichotomist, man is material and immaterial. It really doesn't matter. The emphasis is the same. The totality of your being being sanctified. The God who is the source of your peace wants you completely sanctified. Now we have so reacted to the false doctrine of the old line Pentecostalists as they taught entire sanctification, which is not going to happen until you get home to glory. We kind of have developed an attitude, well... Just not real possible anyway. We just kind of take things as they come. 
Do you understand this is God's will for your life? That every part of your being is made holy, is separated, is set apart for him alone, body, soul, and spirit. Now, I understand, and I hope you do. That's God's plan, and he's accomplishing that in your life. And hopefully, this is happening progressively as you mature in the faith. It is going to happen either way. For some, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a very traumatic experience because the things that God wanted to clean up in your life will be at that day. He said preserved or sanctified or kept or set apart blameless. I am so careful I am so grateful for the difference between the word blameless and faultless. And the New Testament is pretty careful about maintaining the difference. There's not a faultless person here. You still have a fallen nature. You still fail. You still sin. But to be made blameless, which by the way, blameless is one of the requirements for ministry, uh, to be above reproach, to live a life that is without blame, to be made blameless is possible because Christ bore your blame on the cross. And you can live blamelessly because the Holy Spirit enables you to do so with an inward godliness that translates you into an image or the image of Christ. The question is, are you cooperating? Do you notice the motivation in this verse for doing this? It's the second coming of Christ. He said that the motivation is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Has it ever occurred to you? This might change some of the decisions you make today if this occurs to you that whatever your spiritual condition is, when Jesus comes, that's the condition you're going to stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat with. There's not going to be a cleanup time between the rapture and the judgment seat. So if you're not right with God now, and Jesus comes... That's the way you're going to face him. If there's rebellion and sin issues in your life, now, if Jesus comes today, that's the way you're going to face him. That ought to motivate us. Very quickly, verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. This is an attitude about faith. A foolish apostate from the left coast who's now disgraced and out of ministry used to preach, have faith in faith. That's nonsense. Every page of the Bible screams the message given by our Lord in Mark eleven twenty two: have faith in God. Things are not out of control. I suspect if I was on the ground in the Ukraine, I would struggle with that. But things are not out of control. They only seem that way. 
God is still in control. History is still his story. He has called you. He is faithful. He will sustain you, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 25 and 26, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This is an attitude about others. Christians who love God and love the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ love what God loves, and that includes other people. Paul implores that the Thessalonians pray for him and his fellow laborers. He also wants them to maintain a respectful, holy interaction with each other. The kiss was a typical Eastern greeting on the cheek, and in this case it conveys much more than a hello It expresses mutual concern and fellowship. If you don't care about other people, it's hard to believe that you really care about God. Because the Holy Spirit inside of you, if you're walking with Him, causes you to care about the people that He cares about, which is everybody, saved and lost. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. This is an attitude about truth. Paul uses a really strong word here. One writer uh, translated this passage, I adjure you. That's a strong old-fashioned word. He further heightens the challenge by adding the word by the Lord. This is a plea for the propagation of Scripture. I've written to you, don't let it stay with you. Pass it on. The longer I live and the closer to heaven I come, the more convinced I am that truth is a trust. God does not allow you to consume spiritual things for your own sake alone. Everything you're learning here at Maranatha Baptist University is to equip you to obey 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things which thou hast heard among me, uh, heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. This urgency, this sense that time is short, my time is almost gone. I must communicate God's message to this generation while I can. That's an attitude about truth. And finally, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This is an attitude about grace. The final note is a reminder of the basis of all of our gifts from God, and that's grace. Our entire relationship with God from the point of our salvation until our final deliverance in His presence is upon the basis of grace. Let's not forget. We do have hope. Not in this life, or shall we say on the things on the earth. Our hope is in the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we press toward that and we live for that reality. 
And the moment that becomes a reality in your life, it'll change the way you live your Christian life. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we get so wrapped around the axle about the rules, about the commands, about the expectations that we fail to see that all of those actually have a purpose. And that purpose is to direct us to you and to the realization of our own inability to meet those expectations and of our dependence upon the blessed Holy Spirit of God who can enable us to be what we ought to be and do what we ought to do. O oh Lord, that we would cut some of the lines that tether us to this life and love your appearing. You are the great God and our Savior, and we should long to see you and be with you. And we shall sooner than we think. Make this real to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.